Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Why didn't you respond to me? I I said goodnight. Honey, I'm trying to get your attention. All right, can you just give me one second, all right? This is good. It's a Scottish guy throwing a log. For the championship. Would you turn it off, please? All right. turning into your parents. Okay, which one am I? (laughs) I've got some news for you, Ray. Your sex drive is diminishing. Well, if you're my mom, what do you expect? (laughs) I'm serious, Ray. Look, I, I used to have to fend you off every night. Now it's down to less than once a week. No, it's not. Yes, it is, Ray. No, it's not. Yes, it is, Ray. Oh, yeah? <laughs> well, maybe if I'm trying less, it's because of all the rejection. Huh? Yeah, I'm like the, the monkey who gets shocked every time he reaches for the pellet. <laughs> Do you realize that for the last 20 years, your parents have only had sex once a year. Well, who told you that? Your mother. What? 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 Why did you talk about that? She, she saw the sex book, and we just started talking, and she told me. Well, why are you telling me? Because you're turning into your father. Listen, things started slowing down for them when they were the age that we are now. We're not them. I just kissed you, rubbed your chest, kissed you again in an impure manner. You never took your eyes off the TV. Uh, Ten years ago, all I had to do was be awake. Sometimes not even that. I'm still... I'm still... sex machine? Come on. It was just today, you know, today. It was a long day, and the kids uh, had a heavy meal. You know what? I don't need excuses. Come on, let's go right now. Me and you. Let's go. Mano or Womano. I don't want to do it just because you want to prove something. I don't want to prove something. I just love to sex you up. Stop it, Ray. No. You know, you never want to talk about anything. I, I'm ready now. I'm... <laughs> the monkey.
monkey never learns. <laughs> the monkey never learns. Even if you've been hitched 20 years or more, every marriage goes through periods where one spouse feels unloved, you know, uncherished or unappreciated, or in the case of Deborah, unsexed. Uh, most husbands and wives kind of shrug it off, uh, assuring each other that it's, it's, you know, it's not unusual for older couples to experience a decline in desire. You know, the kids are always underfoot, you know, they're always sleep deprived. But the sad truth is that's not too far off from reality for many marriages. You know, once they're past the honeymoon phase and the rigors of child raising or careers start putting some miles on the odometer, the car starts showing some signs of wear, starts kind of slowing down, sometimes in the bedroom. And that is a warning sign, actually. That's a red light flashing on your marital dashboard. And it's actually not the way God intended things to go, but they often do. This past Thursday night, I was sitting at a banquet next to a guy by the name of Gary Thomas. He was, he was actually the, the speaker at this thing, and he, he wrote a book with the title Sacred Marriage. And as we casually chatted over dinner, I mentioned I was giving a message this Sunday on how to make marriage sizzle. And he's like, so how do you make it sizzle? And I was like, dude, you wrote the book. Tell me, man. i got to come up with something for Sunday. And he's like, I don't know. That's not going to be easy. He's like, you know what? Because the reality, Tim, is that statistics show that after the first three years, the vast majority of marriages experience a dramatic decline in intimacy, both sexual as well as emotional. And he said the problem is that most people typically at that moment blame their partners, wondering somewhere around year seven, did I make a mistake? Did I marry the wrong person? I mean, all as if this decline in intimacy was unnatural or irreversible. And he was like, it's not. It's neither. It's actually quite normal. After the first three years, he goes, the pheromones start to wear off, and most couples kind of settle into the routine of everyday life, you know, bills, meals, home repairs. And once you enter kids into the equation, it's like that drop-off in intimacy even goes more dramatic, he says. And he goes, those are the hardest years of any marriage. He goes, you know what they're called? He goes, they're the working years. Because the demands on married couples in terms of careers, child raising, changing diapers, he's like, it's like a whirlwind. And to lose track of one another and drift apart, not for lack of interest, but just by sheer speed of life and density of life. And he said, tragically, it's at that moment where most couples usually bail out. Because they assume it's unnatural and irreversible when it's not at all. Because not only is it normal in any marriage, but there's tremendous room for change and growth and rekindling the sparks of original romance. No matter how many miles you are into the marriage journey or how stalled or broken down your relationship seems to be, there's hope. In fact, that's really God's desire for all married couples. That throughout their life together, they would continually be renewing their intimacy, not only keeping the the flames of sexual passion alive, but connecting both body and soul in deeper ways that bring refreshment and meaning to their marriage. Check this out. In the uh, Old Testament book of wisdom, Proverbs, chapter 5, verses 18 through 19, it records this ancient blessing offered by God to Christian husbands. And God says this. He says, may your fountain be blessed. And some of you are like, oh, that's like a Hallmark card. May your fountain be blessed. But that's because you don't know Hebrew. You see, in Hebrew literature, this is poetry. In Hebrew poetry, the fountain in this context, in the marital context, was actually thought to represent the sexual organs that bring forth life. So translation, may your genitals be blessed. (laughs) And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. That is, find ecstatic delight in this woman who God gave you seven years ago, 17 years ago, 35 years ago. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. In other words, may sexual pleasure be part of your marriage until death do you part. 
God actually does not intend faithfulness in marriage to be boring or lifeless or dull. Sex is God's gift to married folks for their ongoing mutual enjoyment. It's his design, and it's not intended to go flat, to fizzle over time, but rather sizzle through eternity. And that's quite a claim, because I'm like, it kind of sounds like the spam ads I get in my, you know, email box. How many spam mails do you get that start, may her breasts satisfy you always, you know, or something like that. Here's how to enhance them. No, that's spam. <laughs> that, this is different. The Bible is shockingly explicit about married love. I mean, most people assume the Bible's like prim and proper and reserved about such topics, but it's actually quite candid and eminently practical about what true intimacy is supposed to be like between married couples. And by God's design, it's not meant to fizzle. And it has some hopeful words for you tonight if you've lost the sizzle. God wants more for you and your spouse. Do you believe that, that marriage was actually meant to deepen and enrich and get better as you get older? That might be why you're here tonight and saying, you're like, I'm not so sure about marriage, actually. I'm not so sure. But that actually is God's desire. These are his words of instruction, a command for you. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife or husband of your youth, a loving doe. May she satisfy you always. Mature. May it actually burn hotter in intensity over time, not shrivel up and flicker out. But, as you might suspect, that requires some work. <laughs> and that's what tonight is about. Just kind of allowing God's word to refresh our sense of passion if you're a married couple or if you're single. That is awesome that you came tonight because hopefully you're going to get a picture, a helpful picture of what God's designed for sex and marriage is that stands in stark contrast to what the world's offering. You know, I mean, if you just watch TV, it's like to be married with kids. It's like, that's the death tell, the knoll, you know, it's where deadness sets in. You know, shows like King of Queens and The Simpsons, you know, an oafish husband, their nagging wife. But it's like to be young and single, that's where the real fun is. No commitment, no boundaries, that's where, the, that's where the real heat is. Grey's Anatomy, Sex in the City, you know, Desperate Housewives. Folks, that's the opposite of God's design. Here's the deal, God loves sex. It's one of his greatest creations and gifts. But it was a gift to be enjoyed by one man and one woman in the context of a committed marriage relationship. And when it's nurtured in that, process, in that, in that context... When you drain of like guilt and shame or rejection, then watch out because great things happen. In fact, the Bible devotes an entire book to an explicit portrait of married intimacy. It's actually a love song, a long Hebrew poem called the Song of, anyone? Song of Solomon, yeah, or the Song of Songs. Yeah, written by Solomon, who's recognized as the wisest of all men in ancient history. And he's the guy who wrote many of these wise sayings in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, which we looked at earlier this summer. So what we're going to do is look at a brief excerpt from the Song of Solomon tonight and then kind of compare it with some instruction God provides in the New Testament with regard to making marriage sizzle. And you might be surprised. As I said, some folks assume the Bible's silent on the topic, but that's really the church. The church has been silent. And Christian couples have been the worst, really, for it, have suffered in many ways for lack of practical knowledge and guidance. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. My wife, Colleen, and I had a psychology professor in school when we were out at Wheaton College, who candidly shared the amazing details of his honeymoon night with the students in his Human Sexuality 101 class. And uh, his name was Dr. Butman, and I'm serious, it was his actual name. I know, people are like, you shouldn't do that, man, that's not... No, his name was Dr. Butman, actually. And he and his wife got married pretty young, early 20s or so, and they were wed in a church that never spoke about sex. (laughs) except for the occasional sermon just kind of railing against the, you know, rampant immorality in the culture around them. So they were, like, totally unprepared, very nervous about their wedding night. So, like, a week before the wedding, uh, Dr. Butman and his wife-to-be, his fiancée, they took, like, a crash course, and they got these, like, very dry medical books to figure out what to expect and how to prepare for this, you know, experience for the first time. And Dr. Butman actually showed some, you know, initiative. He went out and he actually purchased 
all these suggested products and preparations that the book said would make his wife comfortable on their honeymoon. Well, here's the deal. They honeymooned in the Adirondacks. They stayed in a log cabin. So they drove four hours after their wedding, arrived at this cabin. They were totally exhausted around midnight and completely dark, as you can imagine, pitch dark. And they actually changed in the dark, and Dr. Butman got all his preparations ready. And uh, he and his young bride prepared to come together as husband and wife for the first time. Again, as, you know, as he tells it, he was like, you know, we were both extremely just, just nervous. And as they began the act of consummating their marriage, Dr. Butman reached into the night table, actually, where he had stored some of his, a variety of marital aids and grabbed what he thought was a tube of KY jelly. That's, I know you've never heard of that. It's actually a lubricant, okay? And he was like, I read this will make the night as comfortable as possible, you know, for my, my new bride. And he proceeded to apply the contents of the tube all over his wife. It, it, was, it was about 30 seconds later, he said, that she began writhing in pain and actually howling in discomfort. And then he realized something had gone horribly wrong. And that's when he actually lit a candle, flipped on the lights, and he saw the label which read... Colgate toothpaste. <laughs> now with baking soda. <laughs> All right? Ne- yes, true story. Needless to say, they did not consummate their marriage that evening and, in fact, had to wait several days to give it another shot, this time with the lights on and uh, plenty of candid discussion beforehand. And so some of us, it's like, don't actually want to go back to the days of our youth. And that's fine because God doesn't want his children to slog through marriage with ignorance that results in pain or misunderstanding. See, the Bible makes it clear that sex within marriage, far from being a painful endeavor, is supposed to be one of the most pleasurable gifts God gives his children to enjoy. And this, that God actually receives glory when his married children do it and celebrate it with regularity, vigor, and passion. And some of you guys are like, preach it. (laughs) Let's do this. I want to give you a quick heads up here if you're a parent. I don't have a lot of kids at this service, but if you have kids who aren't emotionally enough to, you know, mature these kind of, you know, intricacies of sex, you can, you can uh, send them downstairs. I don't know what they could do downstairs. They, they could just eat in the kitchen or do something. I don't know. There's probably some stuff to destroy down there. Then again, maybe they should stay because this could be actually the one opportunity they have to learn about God's gift of sex through a biblical lens. Think about the distorted glasses that MTV or what's snickered about in the playground kind of give them. And in your call, you know your children best. But let's just pray, Okay. Um, Sensitive subject, Jesus, we want to ask that you would send your spirit to teach us and to banish any feelings of guilt and shame from past sins or failures in this area. Um, Those are gone. Those are forgiven, Lord. And I just ask that you'd give us receptive hearts to explore your precious gift fully, freely, just without shame or embarrassment, so that the, the committed marriages here tonight and the ones to come in the future, Father, the ones that you're already engineering, would be just lights, lights in a dark world, lights of love in a very cynical world. In your name, Jesus, amen. Okay, let me invite you to open up your Bible, actually, to chapter 4 of the Song of Solomon. We have pew Bibles. Some of them are in, in the sides of the rows. Some of them are in the middle. So please pass them down, if you would, just to make sure everybody gets one. And um, we're going to need the lights on in the back so that you can look at the first four verses of chapter 4 tonight. And uh, as I said, this is a poem, and it's a little different kind of literature than that you're likely used to reading. Now, Understand the context here. It's called Song of Songs in this version. But this is an idealized love poem written by King Solomon to describe his courtship and his marriage to his beloved. She's never given a name. She's just called the Shulamite woman. And this was Solomon's first wife. And the entire book details their original meeting, their whirlwind romance, their wedding, and it culminates in a honeymoon. And that's what this excerpt in chapter 4 is from, their honeymoon, okay? 
So I want you to imagine young groom Solomon and his young bride. They've just left their wedding. They're young. They're carefree lovers. Ha, 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 ha. Laughing and sharing kisses as they cross the threshold into the presidential suite at the Doubletree. Okay? They are all alone for their first time together. They're quiet, all alone. And Solomon looks at his bride and says in verse 1, this is verse 1 of chapter 4, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. And just stop there because you instantly understand that Solomon recognized the power of verbal praise. I mean, that is, he begins their lovemaking encounter by esteeming his wife's physical beauty. He calls her eyes doves. Now, here's the deal, which most commentators kind of agree is a symbol for the purity and the innocence of the woman's virginity, which this couple has safeguarded throughout their dating relationship. This is going to be a little weird, because this is Hebrew poetry. Those of you who took any classes in literature know that poetry is highly symbolic. So it's going to use, like, images and metaphors to stand for, like, bigger concepts. So this is a love poem. You're going to hear see, like, strange word pictures, but we're going to decode them together. And I bet you'll track along with me. You'll see how it goes. Your eyes are doves, pure, white, untainted. He's like, this is, an, this is a perfect moment. Nothing like that opening moment when a couple who's covenanted together to safeguard their passions until they're within the God-ordained boundaries of marriage, they finally stand before one another open and free to give themselves to one another for the first time. And Solomon continues his love speak and says, your hair, your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. It's quite a turn on, isn't it? I got to admit, it's like a little puzzling at first glance. I mean, poetry is poetry and Saul's smooth with words and all, but this one seems off the mark. And husbands, I don't recommend you follow this. You know, when, you, when your wife, you know, is about to disrobe in front of you, do not say, wow, you remind me of a goat. Just a showstopper, okay? Guaranteed dampen whatever flames of passion you're trying to kindle. But a little translation here. This is a compliment in the context of Middle Eastern culture. See, most likely Solomon was beginning to undress his wife from the top down. And as you're about to see, he's initiating foreplay here in a very methodical and deliberate way. And he would have begun by first removing the wedding cap that most Middle Eastern brides wore. And as he removed it, the locks of her hair tumbled down freely and sensuously. It's no secret. Many Jewish women enjoy thick, curly black hair. And this image is meant to evoke the long, silky tresses that the black goats that gazed on the side of Mount Gilead had. Solomon's being romantic. He's he's whispering in in her ear. His face is kind of nuzzling into the rich curls that cascade down the shoulders of his wife. Now, how do you think she is feeling? What is the woman's response? He's, he's esteeming her. He's kind of nuzzling in. He's, he, this delicate touch, his verbal words and caresses. Look at verse 2. We know she likes it because, Solomon says, your teeth are like a flock of sheep, just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. In other words, what is the woman doing? She is smiling. Look at you. You're Hebrew scholars. You know poetry now. You see? That's how we know she liked it. It's a metaphor, okay, for a compliment here. He's like, agrarian society, pure white sheep, clean, glistening from being washed. You have an amazing smile. Good oral hygiene. (laughs) He's like, look at you. Each of your teeth has its twin. None of them are missing. This is always a plus (laughs) in the romance department. (laughs) And so she responds with pleasure to her husband's compliment. Now, husbands, let me ask at this moment. What would you do next? Your Your wife's hair is down. She's smiling, and yeah, you look at it, Solomon moves in for a kiss. Verse 3, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. He's, he's moving in to kiss his bride, and now here it is. Let's see if you can get this. 
What is her physiological response? Let's see if you can decipher this. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. What, what color is, the, is a pomegranate in the inside of it? Ever see one? Yeah, red, pinkish. So figure it out. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. What's happening? She's what? She's blushing. Her face is getting flushed, reddish, pink like a... You think I'm fooling around here? You th- this, is, this is true, Chuck. This is, you have a pomegranate issue, Chuck? Chuck's like, <laughs> Chuck's like, we had pomegranates this afternoon. <laughs> She's starting to blush and tingle, okay, at her husband's touch and respond to his caresses. And so what's he do in verse 4? Kisses her mouth and he keeps moving down. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. So she's probably wearing a wedding necklace with ornamental plates like Solomon is like. These are like the shields that hang on the Tower of David in Israel. That tower was an architectural marvel that the whole nation took great pride in. So this woman is standing straight and she's like tall before her husband. There's no shame. There's no bowed head or no embarrassment. She's not offended or put off by what he's initiating. And while she was wearing this necklace, she was likely wearing little else as she stood before her husband because according to verse 5, Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. This man is looking at his naked wife, and they felt no shame whatsoever. Nothing. He just praises what he sees, and she is ready for him to explore further. And this harkens back to Eden, my friends. This is a beautiful picture of unashamed, intimate sexuality in a divine setting. It's a picture of tenderness and vulnerability, and there's nothing obscene or vulgar about it. It's beautiful, you agree? And it's deliberate. Heightened erotic encounters between husband and wife don't automatically like, happen when a couple like, jumps into bed, right? as Raymond showed us. Solomon has a plan, a roadmap of where he's taking his wife. Women love a man with a plan. <laughs> and starting with verse 1, think of the progression of his praises. He starts with his wife's head and works his way down. Hair, eyes, teeth, lips, cheeks, neck, breast. The husband knew what he's doing. Which is one of the reasons God chose to highlight their sexual relationship in the middle of his word this way. It's a picture. A picture of slow and tender foreplay. And as you'll notice, while there's no touch involved yet, <laughs> Solomon initially focuses on the emotional, emotional arousal of his wife. As the wisest man in the Bible, he understood one of the foundational principles of godly lovemaking for husbands. Men, question for you. What is the most responsive sexual organ of a woman? Chuck, don't answer. <laughs> how, how would you answer that question? The most easily aroused body part of a woman is her mind. Yeah. Some of you were like, wait, I thought it was like some other word I learned in seventh grade. No. Her mind, his verbal caresses in verse one through five are all about creating this environment that is safe, where his wife feels cherished, protected, and free to unfold like the flower that she is. Look at his technique. He, he, uses, he uses his words to lower her natural inhibitions. It's not like, have an extra glass of wine. You know, loosen up. No gimmicks. His words caress her emotion. They praise her beauty. They reassure his kindness and make her feel safe. And when he does touch her, he does it tenderly. You don't get the sense that he comes like, you know, barreling, kicking the door and kind of grabbing, you know, and hungrily pouncing on this lady, which is a mistake many newlyweds make. (laughs) There's a phenomenal book that I can recommend to you called Sheet Music. It's one that Colleen and I read together. We've passed along to other married couples here at Liquid to benefit from. Written by a guy named Dr. Kevin Lehman. He's a Christian psychologist, prolific author, and he's just 
has this wonderful candor that really opens up dialogue between a husband and wife. And anyway, in Addressing Honeymoon Approaches, he writes this. He says, when it comes to sex on the honeymoon, or even, frankly, when I'm talking to men in general, I like to talk about sex ASAP. Most people think ASAP means as soon as possible. But in this case, it means sex as slow as possible. The new groom needs to have this slogan burned into his mind if he wants to give his wife a special evening. And that, that is a great piece of advice, ASAP, as slow as possible. For even those who have been married for many years or decades, women need time and sensitivity to warm up sexually. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Men and women, you're going to be shocked, are not wired the same sexually. You're shocked by this. This is a newsflash, right? Think of your kitchen appliances. If women are like ovens, you need to turn them on in advance because they're going to take a while to warm up. Men are like microwaves. They heat up instantly. The bell's going to go off in 20 seconds, right? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, actually, I actually came across a great picture that illustrates this fundamental difference between how men and women are wired. Man's control panel, one switch, on, off. Woman's control panel, it's like the front dash of the space shuttle, right? It's about every conceivable knob, pressure gauge, button, and dial you can imagine. It's intimidating, and it's complex. But I actually think it captures something of the truth that women were intentionally fashioned by God as more sophisticated creatures than men. And don't mishear that. I didn't, I didn't easy, Mary Jo. I didn't say smarter. <laughs> I said... More sophisticated. You want biblical proof? This is not like Tim's just kind of riffing on this. I want you to go back to Genesis. I want you to think about the order in which God created everything in Genesis. What's he create first, right? He's got, God, God creates sky, water, land, and sea, basic elements. And then he's like, I'm going to go about filling them with this thing called light, right? Sun, moon, and stars. And then he moves on to living things, living creatures. First, does anyone remember? Fish, and then birds. He's going to fill the waters in the sky. And then he moves on to land, and he starts small, crawling things. Moves on to bigger things, livestock. And then on the sixth day, his crowning achievement. Who does he create? Man, Adam, right? Do you get it? He's working in order of sophistication. So think about it. Who is created last? Eve. The female is the penultimate achievement of God's created order in Genesis. As God goes along with more and more complexity from plant to animal to human being, he's getting more precise, more specific, more sophisticated in his level of complexity. And the female is the apex of that process. And there's something to this here, okay? It actually made me feel sympathy for Adam, who undoubtedly, you know, at this point, it's just been like him and the bugs and the cow, you know? And he sees, imagine this for the first time, he sees this unbelievably beautiful, sensitive, complex creature coming towards him, and he can like mutter like two words, Whoa, man, you know, which from which we get woman, okay? That's in the Hebrew there. No, it's not. <laughs> That's not in the Hebrew. But it's true. Bluntly stated, most husbands are up. I'm going to say this candidly, guys. I didn't like jigs up. Most husbands are up for having sex about just any time of the day or night and appreciating just about any form. We can quickly heat up at the drop of a hat, think microwave. Feast, you know, voraciously, like sharks, ah, and then return to thinking about the baseball game 15 minutes later, like, okay, so what's the score anyway? But it is frightening sometimes. A woman, on the other hand, heats up slowly, but there's time and tenderness and emotional reassurances to be ready for intimacy. And if, for a wife, if sex is not linked to kindness, gentleness, 
a safe and secure environment, it's very difficult for a woman to fully enjoy it. And this is the way God made us, folks. I've often wondered why he did this. You know, why, why don't we have the same appetites and wirings? But you know what? When you think about it, it's like it makes sense. You know, if women share the same sexual drives as men, it's like nothing would get done in this world. <laughs> Sex would be the primary activity of every day. You know, it's like global population would swell, you know, to unmanageable proportions. That's not what God wants. And it's just one of the reasons. It's not the main reason. You'll get to that in a minute. That he wired us differently. But Solomon understood this critical distinction, and so he adapts to the full needs of his wife. Slow, ASAP, romantic foreplay with her that's balanced, verbal praise, emotional sensitivity, physical caress, both designed to make her feel safe and treasured as a whole person, not just a sexual object. What's the point? She was his partner, not his plaything. And that may be a wake-up call for those of us husbands here who regard our wife as like our, you know, personal playmate. (laughs) I know it's a church, but I think we have husbands who probably secretly regard themselves as like a closet Hugh Hefner. As if the woman you live with existed to your sexual bidding and other on command. Now, back in verse 5, Solomon used the metaphor of a young fawn, right? Browsing among the lilies to refer to his wife's breast. And that's a tender picture, right? I mean, where Colleen and I live, if you live in New Jersey, you know, we have a lot of deer around here. Anyone see deer around their house? Okay, you don't have to, like, live, like, out in the hicks or something. And the adult ones are very bold and difficult to shock. If you, like, see them crossing around, you can be like, eh, and they'll just be like... Nothing seems to stir them. This is a picture I took of a deer outside the door of my parents' house, actually. Throw that up on the screen, would you, Lisa? This is amazing. My parents do not live down, you know, in the Pine Barrens. They live in Essex County. Think Montclair. Urban environment. This thing shows up at the front of their door when I was there two weeks ago. And I was like, I was like, oh, get my, didn't I have like a crossbow when I was like 12? A six-point buck, the stag outside of my parents' door. And I was like, you have huge mongo deer around here. These are like the, you know, the steroid-enhanced deer. And they're like, yeah, that's the only the big one, though. He said, look in the neighbor's yard. And we look through the neighbor's yard, and they have this whole little flock of baby female deers, the fawns. And they're so sweet and delicate. And if you've ever seen this fawn, they're very different. They're not like, they're easily frightened. And that's the picture we're given of Solomon's bride, like a fawn. She's timid, and you notice he doesn't attack <laughs> or startle <laughs> or frighten her. He actually treats his wife as a person would approach a new fawn, touching her gently so as not to overwhelm her. He moves slowly. Men, sex is not a drag race. And it is not meant to be a predictable formula either, husbands, especially for those of you who've been married for a while. You have to deliberately work against establishing this, you know, unchanging kind of routine. Like, and that's how men do it. They're like, I know this works. I know what works here, you know. Touch this, kiss here, touch this again. And that. no. <laughs> Women need variety. It's part of their God-designed sophistication and complexity. God doesn't want married sex to fall into a rut. Remember, what's the difference between a rut and a grave? Just depth. (laughs) There is no set prescription or unchanging recipe when it comes to sex under God's banner of married love. So that's the point. Don't neglect the time it takes to be an artful lover. Spontaneity and surprise, husbands. The time investment begins with the stimulation of your spouse's mind and her intellect and emotion. First and foremost. You notice that Solomon spends a lot of time talking to his wife. He doesn't just look at her and be like, upstairs. Um, <laughs> this isn't just like throwaway sweet talk to like get her in the mood. Too frequently, husbands tend to divorce sex from the total relationship. That was a big wake-up call for me, by the way, early on in our marriage. I like just assumed, 
My wife, Colleen, was wired like the same way as me, and therefore, we're going to, we are going to browse the lilies of the field around the clock. I'll tell you this, okay? This is going to be like a hothouse in here. You know, come home for coffee break, sex, after dinner, sex, before bed. It's like, we're in bed. Come on, you know? When that didn't happen <laughs> early in our marriage, like second week, <laughs> I rudely began to realize that actually my wife's sexual receptivity seems related to, like, how close we are emotionally, which made me be like, I think I did marry the wrong person. I, I remember this. I was like, wait, you mean to tell me that you're not in the mood because you feel like we haven't talked? <laughs> what, do you, what do you call this right here? What is this? <laughs> or on other occasions, I'm caught completely off guard in the other direction. I remember one weekend we spent a whole Saturday at my in-laws, and, and they're good, good folks, but it was like, long and mind-numbing from my perspective. Colleen usually just goes alone, and I'm just completely like wasted and lifeless from spending the whole day with these people who admit are special to Colleen. But we're driving home, and I'm just wasted. I'm like, well, that's that. This whole day is shot, you know, not happening tonight. And suddenly, I feel someone's fingers going through my hair. And there's this like hot whisper in my ear. I'm like, what are you, what are you doing, you know? What's happening here? It's literally like quarter to 12. We're driving home from Connecticut. And she's like, thank you for spending the day with them. That meant so much that you would go along with me and not complain. I was about to say something. She's like, no. <laughs> and so basically, I, you know, I, I, I was biblical. I was like, I just stepped on the gas, man. I'm like, Lord, home. The point is, Solomon is showing us, men, how vital husbands it is to see sex with your wife as the, part of the bigger picture of your relationship. In his classic book, Intended for Pleasure, Dr. Ed Wheat writes this. He said, husbands, be aware that your wife views the sex act as part of her total relationship with you, even though you, like other men, may think of it separately. And that means that your daily behavior, your intentional loving kindness, and the little seemingly trivial things that have nothing to do with the bedroom will directly impact the frequency and depth of your sexual intimacy. Sex for a woman begins way before the physical act itself. That's actually what the New Testament makes plain. And this is where being a follower of Christ makes a real-time difference. Keep your finger in Solomon. Flip over to Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 28. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to husbands and wives in the early church. And it's an incredible passage that gives us insight into what really injects a marriage with spiritual sizzle. Let's, let's look at the message paraphrase. That's in the, um, the right-hand column. You read with me. This is verse 21 of Ephesians 5. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church. Not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ, as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness, and that is how husbands ought to love their wives. Look at that. Husbands, go all out in love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not just getting, not domineering, but cherishing. Think of, 
Cherish. What does cherish mean? Not like the cool in the gang song. What does it mean to cherish your spouse, your wife? To make her feel valued or special. Like, I mean, cherish means like you feel like a prized possession. You take some time to answer that question, husbands. You know, what makes your wife feel cherished? I guarantee your sex life will take a significant upswing. Now, because I'm going to go out on a limb here, because I know no one else is going to be able to answer that question, but I'm going to go out on a limb and share something personal with you. You know, <laughs> before today, like yesterday, I was telling Colin, I was like, Colin, I'm talking about sex tomorrow night. You know, I, I probably have to, you know, share a few examples, real life. She's like, you can share whatever you want, just don't, you know, get specific. And, and this, is, this is pretty specific. Um, <laughs> you want to know what the number one aphrodisiac in the Lucas household is? I'm talking about actually a little item of clothing that I personally slip into when I want Colleen to get in the mood. Would you like me to put it on for you? Yeah, I brought it with me, actually. I'm going to put this on because it never fails. I put this thing on, and she is like, woo, hot to trot. It's a sweet action right here, boy. You got it, man. I put two of these babies on, rubber yellow gloves, and we are good to go. What did you think, by the way, I was going to pull out? Like a leopard thong or something? It's like, this is church, you know, this is... The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church. And in what form did Christ come to actually show his love to his church? As a servant. Uh, Through a love marked by giving, not just getting. Think of the lengths that Jesus went through to illustrate his love to us. To his disciples, what did he literally do? He washed their feet. And he said this, I am among you as one who serves. In other words, I am not above expressing my love to you by pouring myself into the dirty, mundane, lowly servant tasks of everyday life. Ordinary, smelly stuff. Stuff like washing feet or the dishes. That's what I want to show you what true love is, by humbling myself to serve you first. That is literally what sets Jesus Christ apart from every other religion. You may be here as not a Christian tonight, and you are totally welcome here. We're glad you're here. We're not going to strong arm you. You're here to discover. Awesome. But if you want to know the difference, walk out of here. What's the difference between Christianity and every other major religion? At the center of Christianity is the God who stooped to serve the people he loved. No other religion. That is the expression of God's heart, that he would give up his life to make us clean and pure. It's the same servant attitude of love that led Jesus to sacrifice himself on the cross, saying greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends or his bride. (laughs) That's what Christ calls us church. We are his bride. And he literally sacrificed his life for us to forgive our sins, to demonstrate the depth of his love and commitment to us. That's your model, husbands. (laughs) That's what Paul's getting at here in Ephesians 5 when he says, go all out in your love for your wives exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. I, I know what these gloves mean to my wife, Colleen. <laughs> they don't mean much to me. But when I, when I come home at the end of the workday, I'd like to tell you, I would, I, right now I would like to totally lie to you and tell you our home is like Beaver Cleaver. That like when I walk in, it's like the table is set, the candles are lit. I walk in and she like hands me my pipe and it's like, how was your day, dear? You know, and then hands me the paper and sit down and relax while I finish dinner, you know. And then, like, my you know, kids run through the room like, hi, Dad, we're going upstairs to play quietly. You know, they just run upstairs, you know. 
This is church. We're not supposed to lie. The reality is when I get home, it's, it's most often like a war zone. Colleen has battled it out with those buggers for the past 12 hours. Picking up the house, wiping their snots, cleaning their messes, only have it messed up again five minutes later. And she is exhausted. And she's, it's like she's been home all day at work. And I'm really the one who gets to escape by going to my job. <laughs> and that is a huge sacrifice on her part. And one of the ways, the easy ways I've learned over seven years of marriage now to express my love and appreciation is simply, it's not hard, <laughs> I go under the sink and I put these things on after dinner. Now, this is a small, stupid thing, like cleaning up the dishes after dinner and actually doing them and putting them away. It's only like 20 minutes, but this is like so huge a deposit in my wife's emotional bank account, you'd think like these dishes were made of gold. <laughs> Little things like that mean a ton to her. Things, things like, we got, you ever have one of those tables like in your apartment kind of whatever it is that like attracts all the crap, like all the mail goes on at your keys, all that kind of stuff. And we got one of those big tables right when you walk in. And it's so meaningful to her, like when I don't dump all my stuff on, actually just go to the office, I put my stuff away. If I can help her clear that, it is so wildly disproportionate, her response to me. Thank you for that. You think like I won the lottery or something, you know? That. And the third one, honestly, I'm like love language to my wife. <laughs> so you know my dog, Percy. Cleaning up Percy's crap before I go to work. I'm serious. Putting on gloves in the morning before I actually go out the door so that actually the kids can go out and play and Colleen doesn't have to do it. It's like she's like, thank you for that when I come home. She's like, I love you and kisses my face. This is silly, stupid, domestic stuff that seems small, mundane, and petty, but it's not. It's not to her because she's the one who has to live in the house all day. And honestly, that kitchen is more than just a place to cook. It is a reflection of her of her competency as a homemaker, and keeping it like clean and order is like a vital aspect of her primary love language, which is this. It ain't sex. It's acts of kindness. And when I pitch in, in small, stupid, dirty ways, it expresses how well I understand her as my wife and esteem her as queen of our home. When I proactively clean the kitchen, it tells Colleen I love her, I respect her, I cherish her as wife, mother, lover, woman, friend. And I know it's important to her. And guess what? It's not important to me. I could give her a rip about that. But I will do it to show her that I consider her needs as more important than my own. And that is a major turn-on for her. So in our house, sex begins in the kitchen, not the bedroom. Husbands, let me ask you this. Where does sex with your wife begin? Do you, do you know what her primary love language is? I mean, if you're like, if you're like man, in the bedroom around quarter to 12, I walk in and put a little Barry White on. No. What words and actions truly tell your wife that you get her, you understand her, and want to serve her like Jesus Christ? Because that's the launching pad for sizzling sex, guys. You have to speak the love language of your wife in, in emotional terms if you're going to both enjoy the maximum pleasures of physical intimacy. It's the strangest thing, but I honestly, when I first got married, I used to think like, you know, a huge bouquet of flowers on our anniversary would like really, you know, touch her, show her much of romance, you know? And I'm learning, it doesn't do nearly as much as simply being home on time and pitching in with the kids. <laughs> Gifts are not her love language. Acts of practical service are. So husbands, you want more sex? Ask an easy question. How can I serve? How can I express my love to my wife in a non-physical way without grabbing a handful? serve her sacrifice for her sacrifice your time your ear your heart your body to bring out her beauty she is not a perfect woman but you are called to serve her just as Jesus sacrificed for you in your moment of need 
Unfortunately, I think a lot of husbands think it's actually the wife's job to serve them. They're like, isn't that biblical? Isn't the woman's? No. (laughs) Someone emailed me these pictures under the title Husbands of the Year. These are actual photographs. These are not doctored or photoshopped. They are the results of a worldwide photographic competition for Husband of the Year Award. Joanne, did you email these things to me, I think? This is third place. Third place. This actually goes to Greece. This guy's got, you know, his wife carrying all his lumber while he has a smoke with his Timberlands. Second place goes to Serbia. Nice way to haul your wife around, right? A little cage in the back of your tractor. But you want to see the winner of the Husband of the Year? It was actually Ireland. You got to love the Irish. Real romantics. He's got the six-pack, he's got her hand, and she's got 36 bottles <laughs> carrying in a milk crate. Hopeless romantic. No, 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 no. Now, women, I know I focus primarily on the responsibility of the man to serve for the, for the bulk of this message, and you're just like, dude, just pray right here. Just pray. Do it. No, I, we, you have a role to play, too, according to Paul, who writes in verse 22, wives understand and support your husbands. Understand them and understand this for starters. They are not wired like you. They have different needs, different love language. My primary love language is not a rubber glove. Unless, unless that's all my wife is wearing. That is not my thing. For, for, for most men, I know this is a generalization as well, physical intimacy is often the literal love language for your husband. The average man thinks about sex on average. Anyone? Seven seconds a day. You know, that's widely reported. (laughs) I think like tonight we probably broke that record, right? But there are going to be times in your marriage when you need to respond to his needs even when you're not necessarily in the mood or it doesn't come natural to you. Putting rubber gloves on is not natural to me. Leather gloves and put it... No. And I want to tread very gently here because this is a sacrifice too. But I want to close our time with a final clip that illustrates this tension. Would you roll that clip for us and turn down the lights if you would, Glenn, in the back. Thank you. Oh, God, I'm exhausted. Oh, fall asleep right here. All right, okay, I get it. (laughs) Get what? You don't got to do the whole... I'm tired, Joe. (laughs) Don't worry. I will not be bothering you this evening. Wait a minute. You think this is an act so I won't have to have sex with you? Not much of an act. (laughs) You could jazz it up with a song or two. And, and, by the way, I wasn't going to do anything later anyway, okay? So... You don't got to insult me with your preemptive strike. You're nuts. Admit it. You came in here to tell me you were tired, so, so I will leave you alone later. I did not. Why can't you admit it? Look, you're tired, right? You had a long day. So what's the last thing you would want to do later? Well, you might be right about that. <laughs> See? I know. I know when people don't want to have sex with me. talking to an expert okay so let me ask you this how come you're only picking up that i'm tired means no sex tonight how come i'm tired doesn't also mean gee i could really use some help in the kitchen with all those dishes what am i a mind reader 
another. Hey. Hi. How's your book? It's really great. Yeah? Yeah, it takes place in the 19th century. It's this family. That's very interesting. <laughs> what are you doing? What? You're up. So what? So, I, I come in here, you're up, you're in a good mood, you're not too tired. Who says I'm not too tired? All I'm doing is reading. So you can stay up to read, but you can't spare two minutes for sex. <laughs> Look, I'm sorry, Ray, okay? It's not like I'm trying to trick you. I am tired, and I thought I would do a little reading before I fell asleep. All right. <laughs> There are other things we could do a little before we both fall asleep. I mean, we're not talking about running a marathon here. <laughs> Just gonna roll around a little, you know. I, I find it very relaxing and restful, but what the hell do I know? <laughs> you go ahead, go ahead. Ray, you, come on. Book about the 19th century doesn't put you to sleep. How tired can you be? <laughs> So what you're saying is that you would rather read. Tonight, yes. Do me a favor. If there's people having sex in that book, could you read out loud? There's nothing... I'll just keep, be real candid with you, wives. There is nothing more wounding to a man than getting cold stoned by his wife. Now, look, I am not saying that there won't be times when a husband needs to chill and recognize his wife really is too tired, actually. But the picture that the Bible paints of married sex is of mutual sacrifice, of responsiveness, not rejection. It's interesting, but perhaps the most graphic section of the Song of Solomon is the response of Solomon's wife to his advances. What, what does she do after her husband has taken the time to serve her in both word and action? She gives this precious invitation in Solomon 4, verse 16, let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. In other words, everything I am and have is yours, my husband. She's inviting him to come and get it. <laughs> come into our bedroom and eat. Be, be filled. Have all you want. Wives, although your husband may often be the primary initiator of sexual intimacy, it's critical that you frequently invite him into your garden to satiate that appetite. And do it with frequency, even sometimes, and I do, I tread gingerly here, when you're not necessarily in the mood, if we wait for feelings to serve, you may be waiting a long time. Men have their own insecurities too, and quite honestly, we're not always the best communicators in the world. But I doubt like there's a husband out there who wouldn't do backflips if his wife actually took the initiative to actually be invitational once in a while, to speak his love language when he's not expecting it. The godly wife says to her husband, come into my garden and taste my choice fruits. She's responses to the way he has sacrificed for her, and that is a major turn-on for a man. <laughs> on the other hand, there's actually nothing more divisive or wounding to a man than when his wife stiff-arms him and rejects his advances. If you remember the opening clip, Raymond says, he says, maybe if I'm trying less, it's because of all the rejection. I'm like the monkey who gets shocked every time he reaches for the pellet. <laughs> the devil loves to fracture Christian marriages. That is a fact. Because remember, our, a Christian marriage is a symbol of Christ's relationship with the church. So it's an automatic target for the enemy. 
And a wife who is actually stingy with sex rather than invitational is a prime opening for the enemy to exploit and breed resentment in that relationship. And this is not like, you know, Tim, like, kind of riffing on, let's hear it for the men, or like, dude, this is like Tim's man flesh speaking. The Apostle Paul actually speaks to this specific issue in 1 Corinthians 7, where he commands this. He says, The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife and the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. Oftentimes, one partner in a marriage wields the majority of the sexual power, controlling the when, the how, the how frequently, the how long the lovemaking occurs. Often it's because of biological necessity, all right? I'm just going to... These are just facts. That gatekeeper is often the wife due to periods, longer warm-up time, and more balanced libido. Not too many you know, men with wives who are like, I just wish we would do it more. I'm begging for it. You know? Paul is saying, that may be so, but the marriage bed must be a place of mutuality and submission. There's that word again, submission. Where the wife's singular focus is serving the husband just as the husband's primary focus is pleasing his wife. It's not about grabbing or seeing how much one can get or how little one can give away. It's about thinking thoughtfully about the needs of your spouse first and using that as a springboard to lovemaking. The NIV renders verse 4 as 1 Corinthians 7 this way. It says, The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. In other words, it's about ownership. Once you get married, your body is no longer just your own. And that goes for both of you, says Paul. (laughs) And when you withhold yourself from your spouse, sometimes to punish him, that is, in a sense, robbing him of what God has rightfully given him, of what you vowed to give him for keeps. Godly sex is about putting your spouse's needs above your own, and it's not selfish, it's not self-seeking, it's not greedy or stingy, or only willing to do what's most convenient. I'm not even going to touch the question of frequency or anything like that because the personal rhythms of each individual marriage vary widely. They are personal. But what Paul says in verse 5, the last verse here, is the most pivotal command in the entire Bible when it comes to married sex. Listen to what he commands both husbands and wives. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And some people say, well, the Bible's idealistic about sex. Hardly. (laughs) It is so street-level realistic. God takes into the accounts the wirings of both men and women, and he gives advice to each. Just pause for a minute. I want you to consider all that Paul is instructing married believers here. If you take apart this verse, you're going to see some pretty upfront, bold biblical commands. First, Paul's instructing married believers. He's like, okay, I want you guys to do it. That is a core assumption here, that you are having regular sex if you're in a Christian marriage. Second, do it continually. (laughs) That's actually a fairly frequent activity. There's there's an implicit biblical mandate to have regular, frequent sexual relations. So the paraphrase of this would read, married believers, do it. Do it continually. And if you want to stop and take a break, fine, so be it. But only for prayer. (laughs) Then you get back at it. I'm serious. You see all he's saying here? Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent. If you've talked about this, wrestled this thing out, fine, but only for prayer. How great is St. Paul? (laughs) I know some of you men are like, I haven't committed scripture to memory, but I am memorizing that verse. 
One translation of the Greek word here, deprive, is do not rob one another. And the obligation is on both parties. But the point is pretty blunt. To say to your spouse, the store is closed. Or you can shop in this aisle, but not in that aisle, is less than Christian. And it actually opens the door to Satan, <laughs> to resentment, to bitterness, to feelings of hurt, anger, and temptation, particularly on the part of the man. Every seven seconds, men are thinking about this. And here's the deal. That doesn't go away once you get married. <laughs> in fact, I'd argue that it actually increases. You know, it's like you, you dream about ice cream for 20 years, and you finally get a taste and, like, buy your own ice cream store. And now you tell me it's only open from 8.15 to 9.30 p.m. on weeknights, beginning with the letter M? What? Cruel joke. <laughs> what the Bible is instructing married couples is that the only time you should deny each other sexual pleasure is by mutual consent. When you both actually openly talk about it, there should be dialogue about this. So here's a question, married couples. When was the last time you talked about your sex life? There's dialogue here. And a generous spirit is supposed to pervade both husband and wife as they seek to be sensitive to the other. Like this. Like, you know what? You look too tired tonight. You know what? I actually do understand. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I was hoping to have sex, yes. <laughs> but wives, at those moments, during those times when you must decline because of tiredness or menstruation or whatever, you do so gently and you do it with a promise. You know, I can't tonight, sweet. I, I, can, I know that's important to you. I am exhausted. It's not you, though. It is me. But I want to be here for you. So why don't we set the alarm, alarm early for tomorrow? Or tomorrow morning before you go to work. Look, I promise. Or the next, and then you deliver. <laughs> you want your husband to make, be a man of his word. You be a woman of your word. That is his primary love language. And it means a lot to him. Sex is supposed to bring you closer. And if you abstain, it has to be commit to actually praying for some specific cause. In other words, Paul's like, in a crisis, okay, or a period of intense spiritual growth where you both are like, we want intimacy with God to be our number one focus. Nothing else. We're even giving up sex. You do that, fine. But even then, only for a very limited time. You see this? Now, you've got to understand something. I don't dare speak about this right now. Men, you don't you dare walk out of here at this moment. Because this is, this is not an invitation to abuse Paul's teaching. I would be remiss if I didn't remind you that one of the all-time biblical mandates that trumps everything is in 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not demand its own way. This is, this is no invitation, husbands, to guilt or shame or manipulate your wife. Again, the principle is mutual submission. What does she want? And the ideal is that you two would argue about sex. Think about your arguments about sex. There's, in Paul's mind, in God's mind, they're supposed to be like this. What do you want to do, honey? Because you know what? That's what I want to do. Do you want to make love tonight? No, you seem exhausted. We haven't connected much this past week. Let's take some time over the weekend to connect and try for Saturday night. Is that what your arguments about sex are like? Because <laughs> that's what elevating the other's needs would generate. Marriage is mostly about giving, not receiving. And that includes sex. <laughs> and folks, in the end, this is the ultimate reason that God wired us differently. As a means of sanctification. In other words... Marriage isn't just about making us happy, but about making us holy. Building into each of us the self-sacrificing character of God himself. Men and women may wish that their spouses had the same you know, sexual wiring as they do, but it's in being partnered with someone unlike you that you actually grow the most in patience, in understanding, sensitivity, and trust. And self-sacrifice, that's how you grow. Philip Yancey writes this. 
Marriage strips away the illusion about sex poured into us daily by the media. Few of us live with oversex supermodels. We live instead with ordinary people, men and women who get, get bad breath, body odors and unruly hair, who menstruate and experience occasional impotence, who have bad moods and embarrass us in public, who pay way more attention to our children's needs than our own. We may live with people who require compassion, tolerance, understanding, and an endless supply of forgiveness. Well, so do our partners. Such is the ironical power of sex. It lures us into a relationship that offers to teach us what we need far more. Sacrificial love. The naked truth is that, folks, marriage is just as much about making you holy like your Lord Jesus Christ in his character as it is about making you happy by just meeting your needs. That's what marriage is about. The reality is, friends, the vast majority of folks, you know, I marry a lot of people, do counseling with some married, you know, engaged couples, and I always, you know, I hear like, well, you know, love is going to keep us together. (laughs) You stick at it long enough, you're willing to serve your spouse as God intends, you'll learn instead that marriage teaches you what true love is really about. That's all the time we have, but I, I want to end with a prayer. Just for our married couples here tonight, and those of you who are going to get married, I don't want to walk out of here depressed because this is God's building into you something. And tonight, I want to invite you, if you are married, to have a candid conversation about all that you'd heard. Not, in fact, not all of it, maybe just one aspect. Husbands, a great question to ask would be like, you know, you go out tonight, take, you know, you go, out, go out to Fridays, go out, you know, go get some cheese fries or something, and just say, so, wow, some message, huh, wow, woo, wow, man, Pastor Tim, woo, yeah, gloves, those gloves, wow, uh, so what's one thing that struck you about, about what he was saying, and you want to really risk something, men, so I'm going to open myself up here, be gentle, could I serve you better as a husband? And how about wives? Could you dare ask, what's your honest experience of me? Am I receptive? Are, are, are there areas of our intimate life that you struggle with? And then prepare yourself if he gives an honest answer because it doesn't mean you're inferior. This is about growth, about growing into the character of Jesus and meeting needs more efficiently. Dialogue, converse, and then you pray. Don't you dare have that conversation without praying at the end. <laughs> And I want to challenge you. I challenge the, five, the 4.30 sir, or 4 o'clock, whatever, the earlier service. I don't even know what time it is anymore. I want to challenge, I challenge them, I'll challenge you guys, to consider not having sex for 24 hours. But in, this is for married folks. <laughs> don't know, I don't know. I said, would you do that? Would you not have sex for 24 hours and actually commit yourselves to prayer, to pray together for your own heart and for your marriage together? So men, to actually say, Lord, give me a heart, actually, that cherishes my wife. I couldn't answer that question. I don't know how she feels valued. Would you show me this week ways to serve her and let her know how much I value her? And wives, to pray, Lord, give me a heart to understand and support my husband, to to give generously and be open to him and his needs. 24 hours, a day of shared prayer together, and then the rest of the week, you do whatever God tells you, okay? Husbands, you take the initiative. When God opens your eyes, whenever you think about intimacy, instead of taking off your clothes, how about putting on a glove? (laughs) Or wives, you support your husband this week. Consider his needs and give yourself unreservedly and unexpectedly to him. And here's the funny thing. In so doing, both of you will be imitating your God. It's an amazing thing. Let's pray together.
Jesus, our love is flawed. We know. Fall short, Lord. None of us can do it. But, Lord, you have done it, and you still do it. Your love at this moment radiates to each person here, single, married, single again. doesn't matter. And, Lord, you are committed in your love to them, not just loving them, accepting them just as they are with our flaws and our faults, but loving us enough not to let us stay that way. You want to grow us. You want to mature us and change us. Do it through sex. Do it through the marriages that are here, Lord. I ask that you'd strengthen them, empower them with your spirit, protect them, Lord, make them stronger this week. And Lord, for the marriages to come, there are future wives and future husbands who are here tonight, Father. We know that. I just pray, Lord, you build into them the marrying kind of character, Lord, that's needed to reflect your love for us. We thank you for your love that never fails. And we worship you now for it. In Jesus' name, amen.